Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. After that, he taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. But they could think of nothing, because all the people hung on every word he said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In January of 1517, a Dominican priest named Johann Tetzel was appointed Grand Commissioner of Indulgences in Germany. This meant he could sell pardon and forgiveness of sin on behalf of the church. The Catholic Church held at the time that good works, such as almsgiving, could help reduce the amount of time one person would spend in purgatory where the redeemed go to be purified by refining fire until they are worthy to enter heaven. But Tetzel took this concept a step beyond. He would sell indulgences for future sins. His often adversary Martin Luther tells a story. After Tetzel had received a substantial amount of money at Leipzig, a nobleman asked him if it were possible to receive a letter of indulgence for a future sin. Tetzel quickly answered in the affirmative, insisting, however, that the payment had to be made at once. The nobleman did this, receiving the letter and a seal from Tetzel. And when Tetzel left Leipzig, the nobleman attacked him along the way, giving him a thorough beating and sending him along empty-handed, saying this was the future sin that he had in mind. Now, we don't know if that particular story is true, but Tetzel also sold indulgences for the deceased. He's famous for his couplet, As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. See, they were raising money for a reconstruction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and maybe raising a little bit towards the debt of his archbishop. Tetzel was remarkable at raising money by making people question whether or not their loved ones or themselves were fully saved. The argument, in essence, is that Christ's sacrifice was not enough to win for them eternity. We had to add something to it, our good works, specifically in this case, our money, to experience the fullness of salvation. And in response, Martin Luther composed his 95 Theses in October of 1517, which directly addressed things like the sale of indulgences and led to the Protestant Reformation. So when we hear today's scripture reading, we might think to ourselves, why did those people put up with that? Why didn't they just argue against that practice using scriptures just like this? Well, the scripture was all in Latin at the time, and only priests and scholars had access to it. People felt they didn't have a choice but to trust others to figure out their religion for them. But that's just one of the many reasons why we as Christ followers dig into God's word. 
so that it can be read in the whole context of God's rescuing and restorative intent. And so we're going to dig into Scripture a bit today. Now, is there irony that I get to share this message shortly after inviting tithes and offerings of the church? That's not lost on me. But here's the thing. God has called God's people to offer at least a portion of their material treasures in service to their God and to the ministry of believers throughout time. And frankly, if the church had been upfront with the need in Tetzel's time, it probably wouldn't have felt quite so shady, quite so self-serving. It was the fear tactic that you and your loved ones might dwell in a fiery purgatory, that we cannot be forgiven of our sins unless we plunk some money in the plate. Jesus simply doesn't abide that. And that takes us to our first lesson this morning. Greed cheapens what's most precious to God. Greed cheapens what's most precious to God. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When I was getting ready to head off to Army basic training in the summer of 1994, I knew I was going to need some running shoes. I had heard that we might be doing some running in basic training. And so I went out and I got some kicks. I got some really nice sneakers. Adidas had just released this style that they called equipment. And you could change out the lining or the boot with many different colored types of styles. And the outside shell remained the same. I was ready to run and I was ready to look good in those shoes. So I got to basic and they looked at my new sneakers and they said nope so they sent me to the exchange to pick up some new plain blend in with everybody else nikes that cost me almost my entire first paycheck i couldn't not run and i couldn't run in the shoes that i brought I had just learned the cadence. They say that in the army, the pay is mighty fine. They give you $100 and they take back 99 And I thought they were kidding. So imagine you're in the year 30 AD, making a several-day trip to Jerusalem by foot in the spring. And you have to offer a sacrifice, and it has to be up to snuff. If you show up with a less-than-perfect animal to sacrifice, then you brought it with you for nothing, and those serving the temple wouldn't accept it, but you still had to offer a sacrifice. So as a convenience to the pilgrims offering the sacrifice, the good folks at the temple made available a service. They'd be willing to sell you an animal that meets their standards, market cost plus a bit of a convenience fee, maybe a lot of a convenience fee. You made the sacrifice at the temple with the animal of their approval, or you didn't have a right relationship with God. And the money changers were making bank on this deal to the benefit of those who worked at the temple. In Matthew, Mark, and John, it doesn't paint the response so lightly as Luke did. Jesus is angry. He's flipping tables and running these charlatans out with whips. But the part they all have the same is this. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah once again. The portion he quotes says, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with the joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I've noticed 
when Jesus quotes scripture, there's usually something we need to pick up from the margins. Like Easter eggs for careful readers who see the connection between the words Jesus planted in the Old Testament and the stuff that he's experiencing just then. So just a couple of verses down in Isaiah chapter 56, it says, For the leaders of my people, the Lord's watchmen, his shepherds, are blind and ignorant. They are like silent watchdogs that give no warning when danger comes. They love to lie around sleeping and dreaming. Like greedy dogs, they are never satisfied. They are ignorant shepherds, all following their own paths and intent on personal gain. Jesus, in this moment, was not just causing some chaos in the temple. He wasn't just cutting off a lucrative financial source. If they knew their scripture and listened carefully, he was saying that the priests in charge were greedy dogs, ignorant shepherds leaving their flocks in danger to pursue their own personal gain. They were selling God's grace. Listen to this. Forgiveness has been purchased for us, but nobody can sell it to us. Forgiveness has been purchased for us, but nobody can sell it to us. When Jesus was less than a week away from dying a horrible death to secure for all eternity what these priests were selling for their own profit, of course Jesus would be angry. Our second lesson is this. Envy wants what it doesn't have, and nobody else can have it. Envy wants what it doesn't have, and nobody else can have it. After that day, Jesus taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word he said. The tenth commandment tells us you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The religious elite of Jesus' time had been upset ever since John the Baptist was doing his ministry down by the Jordan River. We're told that all of Jerusalem would trek out many miles to see him preach and baptize, but they, the priests of the temple, were supposed to be the experts. The temple was supposed to be the epicenter of religious life. And yet, here's this crazy priest's kid out in the wilderness, giving everyone a bath in the river, calling the priests vipers and stealing all their thunder. And he was just the warm-up act for what was to come. Were they jealous? exceedingly, so insanely blind with jealousy that they were beginning to plot murder. They couldn't see the favor that God had given them, their place of favor, their position of influence and abundance, their privilege. They get to be known as servants of the Most High God of Israel. It wasn't enough. It was never enough. And their greed, their envy, became deadly. It would take them deeper into their plot to kill Christ. And our greed and envy kill Christ in us, too. How? Because of what we feel we lack, we might resent what God has specifically given to us. Because I don't have what that person has. What I have is detestable. Because they appear to have a better job or a better car or a better family life or a fitness regimen. Whatever it is, we're tempted to see our circumstances and the things that fill them as undesirable, as less than, 
And I'm not talking about when we face the soul crush of grief, but when we face the disappointment of reality simply falling short of expectations. And when we forget to be grateful for what God has put purposefully into our lives, we certainly don't thank God for providing for us. Worse yet, we might resent God for providing in ways that don't match our specifications. And that's a separation. And that's deadly. But... Our third lesson is this. Gratitude and contentedness are the death of greed and envy. Gratitude and contentedness are the death of greed and envy. Gratitude and contentment have proven difficult over time. Early in the experience of the Hebrew people being liberated from the harsh experience of Egyptian slavery, we hear the groanings of the newly freed. In Numbers chapter 21, it says, The people grew impatient with the long journey. And they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink. We hate this horrible manna. They were freed from slavery with signs and wonders by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm. And here God was literally raining down food from heaven to feed them. And they were griping. Now that seems bad, but wait until you hear how Jesus interprets this passage for us. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, my father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the Hebrew people tasted the free gift of liberation and the provision handed to them by grace. And let them have a foretaste of the bread of heaven, the very bread of life. And they complained. They wanted to go back to slavery under harsh rule. Maybe serving God wasn't the smorgasbord of joys unlimited that they imagined. Or maybe the discontinuity of liberty was less reliable than the certainty of the shackles of forced labor. They had a chance to have a sensory experience of God's salvation. And they didn't like God the taste. I'm going to be honest, this part is one of the hardest parts for me. When I take personality tests, I tend to be an optimizer. I see what is, and my mind immediately goes to what could be. I'm always assessing for how to improve, or how to upgrade, and how to expand, whether it's by wiring or by training. That's what I tend to be good for if I'm good for anything. But you know what I'm bad at? Stopping to celebrate being grateful in the moment. I always see what more needs to be done. And unless I'm very intentional, I fail to pause and give thanks for what God has already accomplished and who God is. And every once in a while, when I'm telling God what I think needs to be done, the Spirit of God makes me pause for a moment, asks me some questions. Grant, did I wake you up this morning? Did you receive the food, shelter, and clothing that you need? Do you have running water? Do you have access to indoor plumbing? Do you have a loving family? Do you have meaningful employment? Do you have a couple dollars in your pocket? Yes, I know it's plastic, but still, you get the point. Do you have reliable transportation? And here's the big one. Grant, did my son give up his life on a cross so you could be forgiven of your sins and make it possible for you to even be aware that these blessings are from my hand. Will my presence ever be enough for you? 
Will Jesus ever be enough? It's not a demeaning voice. It's not a guilting voice or a shaming voice. It's the voice of love who gave to me the very best gift imaginable. He gave this gift to you as well, to all of creation, so that we might know the depths of compassion that have been provided for me today and will provide for us eternally. Does God ever count through your blessings with you? The Apostle Paul, as he was pouring himself out during his missionary journeys, was constantly in trouble, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the kingdom that has come near to us. The message landed Paul in prison and in pain on a regular basis. It was a constant struggle for the man who tirelessly spread the gospel throughout the Mediterranean. And even with his regular job, he was constantly in need of the kindness, care, and generosity of others. The church at Philippi was all ready to help out. In the face of all this adversity, Paul writes to them, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. See, that's another thing. When we're grateful and content, we also tend to be generous. Generosity helps put our greed and envy to death. Generosity isn't an indicator of a person's bank account. It's an indicator of our hearts. So generosity, gratitude, contentment, I encourage you to spend some time with God today, allowing the Holy Spirit to count your blessings with you. Hear the loving voice of your Lord speak with you through all the things that have been placed in your life for good. And for each of these people, places, and things, maybe just whisper a word of thanks to our God. Because in every situation, with much or with little, God can put our greed and envy to death If Christ is with us, we have what we need most of all. We can be satisfied and thankful in all situations through Christ who gives us strength. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, you are more than enough to satisfy our every need. You are not only the giver of every good gift, God, you are the greatest gift we could imagine. We thank you that we can be satisfied in you, that if we take stock of what you have entrusted to us, Lord, we can find our needs are met. And not just ourselves alone, but the community that you've given us, those who have been given to us to surround us with love and support and care. God, we thank you that we're not even called to experience gratitude all alone, but that you have surrounded us with a family of faith who comes to our aid in times of need, And Lord, who we are able to assist when they have need. God, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to know that you are present so that we might give you thanks. And in all these things, Lord, we pray that we would know Christ is enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen.